0: We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Jackie Hooper and Megan Davies about the radical early years of the Vancouver Mental Patients Association, or MPA, in the 1970s, and about a recent film project to recover some of that important history. In the early 1970s, the so-called mental health system was busily shifting people out of institutions, but doing far too little to support them in their new lives on the outside. The system was very hierarchical, and many people had experiences with it that were far from positive. At the same time, it was an era of radical possibility, with many social movements that were strong and growing. One such movement that is often forgotten in histories of the New Left era is amazing self-organizing that happened among people who had experience of the mental health system, mental patients or ex-inmates, as some people identified in that era, or psychiatric survivors or mad people, as some identify today. One of the earliest and most inspiring of these experiments in self-organization and mutual aid was the Vancouver MPA, which until its structure was forced to change by governments later in the decade, was democratic, largely non-hierarchical, and most important of all, incredibly effective. Hooper was an activist with the MPA in those years, and one of the group that actively shaped the recent film project. Davies is a historian at York University in Toronto who was centrally involved in making the film. They talk about the radical early years of the Vancouver MPA and about the film called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, Stories from MPA. I spoke to Hooper and Davies by phone from British Columbia.
1: My name is Megan Davies, and I'm a historian. I teach at York University in Toronto. This project that we're going to talk about is a public history project about the MPA, or the Mental Patients Association that was started in late 1970, early 1971 in Vancouver. And this was in an era of deinstitutionalization in mental health. And there were very few community supports. And it was started in response to that gap of community support. A group of former patients and their supporters got together and started an organization to provide support in the form of a drop-in and eventually housing and work and cultural activities. The MPA is historically significant because it was the first group of its kind in Canada and one of the first in the world, in fact. And it also was really at the forefront of progressive social movements in Canada. In June 2010, so three years ago, with a couple of other academics, we started interviewing members from the early days of MPA. The interviews were so powerful and so evocative. People were so passionate about the early MPA. They loved the organization that we just couldn't say, oh, well, we're just going to take these interviews and do our academic analysis on them. So we did something that's quite unorthodox in the field of history. We invited our interviewees to help us interpret our research data and to make a research product for the History of Madness in Canada webpages. And they chose to make a documentary. And so we spent three years creating the documentary as a collaborative project, using our funding and our expertise and connections to provide the scaffolding for the project, but that we always tried to be the supporters, not the directors of the project. So the project was moved by the early MPA members that appear in the film. I was one of the first MPA
2: members. I guess it was late 71, 72. I was in the hospital and in September I got out of the hospital. i getting out the
1: nature of the mental health system at the time, and the fact that many of these people had been in institutions, this was tremendously empowering for people who had been in the mental health system, and it really changed their lives. That The MPA was very successful at getting funding. They got funding to hire people, but they didn't just hire people. People were given jobs they had to run for them at elections, at these general meetings that Jackie's talking about. So if you wanted a job, you had to run for that job. And then six months later, you would be up for election again. And one of the people in the film, John Hapfel, has spoken to me very movingly of how empowering that process was. Because he said to me, you know, Megan, here you were, you were elected by your peers to serve them. And, you know, this may be the first moment in your life where you'd got a job and you were elected by the people who you were gonna take care of because they trusted you. So he says that that whole way in which the early MPA created work for people was just transformative. And then they right away recognized that housing was important. I think one of the people in the film talks about this early acknowledgement of the principle of housing first And so they started buying houses. They got funding from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And the houses, again, were run as collectives. And so people who lived in them got to decide who their roommates were. But everybody did chores in the house and took turns doing the shopping and, I guess, the cooking, but with support. And, again, very empowering for people who had had difficult mental health histories. There was
2: a great mixture of people. And we had a workshop, and they made things.
1: And you had photography equipment in a dark room.
2: That's right, too, and, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and you put out the monthly oh, the um, nut- tabloid newspaper. Oh, yeah, in a nutshell.
2: I edited it for a while. We had mental health issues and poems by people. Hey, we had a psychiatrist write in it at one time, too.
1: In a nutshell, the newspaper had political stuff in it and uh-huh. personal stories. People published their poetry. And you know, you've got to think again about how empowering that would be to see your stuff in print if you've never written a poem before. There was artwork in, in a nutshell and then just useful information like you know, how to get from Riverview, the psychiatric hospital, to the MPA drop-in. So it was a very eclectic magazine, but it represented the kind of eclectic nature of MPA. And it was put out by members.
2: And we got a vehicle, and we used to go out to Riverview. I think once a week we'd go out to Riverview, and we'd sit on review panels, MPA members would. We'd sit on review panels people were going to be discharged or trying to get discharged and, and we'd speak up for them in these review panels.
0: What else can you tell me about the founding of the MPA?
1: Do you want me to tell the story, Jack? Yeah, you know it. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a, it's the story, right? And Lanny has written it and told it many, many times. It was in 1970 and Lanny had had his second hospitalization for severe depression. He'd come out of the psych ward at the Vancouver General Hospital, and he was attending a day program at the Burnaby Community Mental Health Centre, the first community mental health centre in Vancouver. And this group met Monday to Friday, and on the weekends there were no services offered. And what they found in the group was that people started committing suicide on the weekend because they had no support. And the people in the group, the patients, started circulating a phone list amongst themselves, but the people running the group didn't want that to happen and tried to shut that down based on the premise that they were the experts in providing mental health care. So it was a sort of secretive element to the beginnings of that. And then Lanny wrote a letter to a guy called Bob Hunter who went on to become one of the founders of Greenpeace. But in 1970, Bob Hunter was writing as a columnist for the Vancouver Sun. And he had written a series of very scathing comments about Riverview Mental Hospital in Vancouver. So Lanny wrote to him about the situation and said, could you write a column about our idea and put in my phone number and Bob Hunter did this. And you know, as Lanny tells the story, his phone just rang off the wall and they had their first meeting probably in early 1971. And about 80 people showed up at the first meeting You know, and then the organization just took off from there for about the first four months. They didn't have much funding. I think their first funding was from the graduate students at UBC. They got, I think, $1,000. But then they started to get funding from the federal government. That's the myth of how MPA started. Well, it's the story of how MPA started. And it really was the first. There was nothing like that happening elsewhere in Canada and really very few other places in the world where there were patients coming out of institutions and forming their own group. And I think it's highly likely that the protest that you guys did at Riverview in 1973 was the first psychiatric protest, anti-psychiatry kind of Mm protest globally. I remember
2: in the drop-in centers that we would stand practically any kind
1: The was very inclusive and they started out with no rules whatsoever, as I recall, but they did put into place some very basic rules about respecting other people, yes. no drugs, no alcohol, no, no violence. Right. But each decision, all those rules would have been decided by the general membership at these often long and lively meetings that they would have.
0: So you've talked about housing and a drop-in and a workshop and the newsletter. Were there other things that MPA was doing in those years as well? I
2: think that was about Mm it. The drop-in was the central
1: spot. Yeah. I mean, I think that what MPA did for its members in the early years that was really important was that it helped them form an, an analysis of their situation. So they were less likely, I think, to blame themselves for where they were and more likely to see activism as a way forward. People from early MPA that we interviewed, people like Jackie, the MPA provided you know, an avenue towards being an activist mental health mm-hmm. consumer.
2: And one thing we lost was stigma. We didn't have anything to do with it. And I still talked to people about it, even
0: at the age of 86. And I think that spread through the city a little I asked Hooper and Davies how, given the power of that stigma, the early MPA challenged the skepticism that they surely faced from outsiders about people with mental illness running their own grassroots, democratic, non-hierarchical organization.
2: No, we we compared it to a fracture
1: i think that one of the things about the willingness of the psychiatric community in vancouver to work with mpa albeit at at a sort of guarded distance was that this was the 70s right and this was an era when things were in flux about mental health you know when you had Thomas Saz and, you know, radical ideas of of R.D. Lang were out there. So there was a bit of flux, right? It wasn't the big pharma moment that we're in now in psychiatric history. You know, talk therapy was still real. People were exploring things like gestalt therapy and past-life regression. There was a bit more out there on offer, a bit more complexity. And the thing was that psychiatrists that I talked to, Grew to respect MPA because MPA worked. They saw it working for patients, so they respected it. it, it and it some of it. them copied it. I can remember going to UBC
2: when there was a doctor called Ferdinand Knobloch. He ran the group in the hospital patterned
0: on MPA. Given how successful it was, why isn't the model of the MPA the, the dominant model now?
1: Model was lost um, and I think that there's truth to that. I think that also because the funding for the MPA initially was from the federal government and it was fairly flexible funding but then they were forced to turn to the province and the, it wasn't that the provincial government administrators were unsympathetic but they were unable I think to work with the structure of MPA Simply yeah, they wanted somebody to address who was the manager
2: or something.
1: Yeah, they couldn't work with a non-hierarchical organization. So perhaps one of the answers to your question could be that the governments of the day and probably the governments of today wouldn't work very well with MPA. I mean, if, as I understand it the um, West Coast Mental Health Network in Vancouver has just had their funding cut by the Greater Vancouver Health Authority because they don't fit within their mental health system. That's what I I think the rationale is. Well, the West Coast Mental Health Network is a patient-run, a bottoms-up organization like MPA. So it would suggest to me that the state is still unwilling to see patients as their own experts. That's true. So I think that it was a radical model, and radical models have a hard time making it into the mainstream. MPA never provided employment for psychiatrists or people with power in the system. It rubbed up against the established power bases, and I think in very effective ways. But that didn't, in the long term, it it didn't create lasting support for the organization. You know, it seems to me so obvious (laughs) that the MPA was a model that worked and should have been copied and taken up across Canada. And parts of it were in that there is an acknowledgement of the patient perspective and the patient voice and the concept of empowerment. But the powers that be, be they the state or the professionals, aren't willing to give up the whole show. You know, like we did with making the film, we said, as much as possible, we said, this is your film. You tell us how you want it to take shape and who you want it to be marketed to. Mm-hmm. But that's, a, that's very radical in mental health, right? Oh,
0: yeah. I think we can jump now to talk a little bit more about the film. Tell me a little bit more about how it came to be.
1: As I said, we started off with the original interviews in June and July of 2020. 20- and we had our first project meeting in February 2011. We met whenever I was in town, usually in the downtown east side in different places, and not everybody came to the meetings, but the core group was really faithful because it took us a long time to finish the movie and we had many catastrophes along the way, but the group, including Jackie, were very patient with us and very loyal to the project. We were interested in them. <laughs> They Yeah, they really, I think you guys were interested in the yeah, project. We were. So there's two things that are important about the film. Of course, the film itself, the product is important, but the process was important. And in a sense, the way that the film came together kind of mimicked the early MPA. But we started by transcribing the interviews, and then giving each participant, like Jackie, a chance to review their interviews and decide which they thought were the most significant sections of their interviews. And then I took all those important sections and I grouped them. So, you know, a lot of people, for instance, thought housing was important, and a lot of people talked about the drop-in as this vibrant, empowering place, so that was another topic. And a lot of people talked about the changes and the way in which MPA changed from being this democratic organization to this hierarchical organization. After I kind of clustered these topics, we mapped them onto a storyline collaboratively. And then the group took a look at some kind of key principles about how people with mental health issues should be portrayed in the film, the ethos of the film, kind of a value statement. And so we gave the interviews. Selections, this map that we'd created and this value statement to our first editor, and he created a rough draft. And then we had a young film graduate from York, Catalin Prudzchki, who was just critical to the success of the project. He was great. And he then made the rough draft, and we brought that back to the group, and the group commented, and we went back and forth and put in historical footage and photographs from the NFB and the CBC and people's personal photo collections. And the group also made decisions about who the film should be marketed to. And they were really clear uh, about that as well, because they're a really political group of people. So they were very clear that they wanted people with mental health difficulties to see the film, particularly youth and they wanted it to be marketed to people working in the mental health system so they would see the model of MPA.
0: One of the things I was really struck by in the paper that you sent to me, Megan, was, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'll probably get it a bit wrong, was in one of the sections written by Lanny, he said something like, it was really essential that the filmmakers work with us because otherwise they wouldn't have had the theory to do it right. Explain a little bit what do you think he means by that.
1: The film is kind of a radical historical exercise because oh, yeah. historians don't usually do what we've done in the film. And it, it's part about giving expression to voices from the margin, a kind of a democratization of voice and making history work in the interest of social justice and kind of sharing ownership of history. But Lanny was making that point that People who hold history hold not just information. It's not just that Jackie can tell me about what the early MPA drop in looked like, but Jackie also has an analysis that's really important. So she holds theoretical understandings that I, as a historian, need to be sensitive to. And writing that paper with Lanny was about as big a project as writing a dissertation. (laughs) Because he challenged everything. (laughs) He's a really good writer, and so he insisted that my writing be accessible. But he said to me, I want you to think of an illustration from your own life, of your experiential theory. So I was moved to recall that the previous week I'd been cycling home from work. You know, it was nighttime, and some guys in a truck came a bit close to my bike. And I was, as every woman lives with, a fear of rape. I was in that moment. Well, you know, that fear of rape wasn't just an emotion or even a factual thing. It was a theory about gender and violence and society, right? And so in the film, there are expressions of theory, and they're expressed in a particular way. But for sure, early members of MPA have a theoretical understanding of power and disempowerment because mpa provided them with the intellectual scaffolding to construct that theory and it's a very hands-on theory and it's a very important theoretical understanding that came out of early mpa and i think that within our current mental health system mental health difficulties become the fault of the individual and the way of dealing with them is you know through taking medications And medication has its place, and it is helpful to many people. Helpful to me. (laughs) But what is also helpful is understanding the mental health system as a system and understanding a kind of collective, a broader understanding. So that's how I take what Lanny
0: was writing about. You have been listening to my interview with Jackie Hooper and Megan Davies about the early years of the Vancouver Mental Patients Association in the 1970s and about a recent film project that unearths some of that important radical history. To learn more about the film, you can visit its website at historyofmadness.ca the inmates are running the asylum. That's with a dash between each word. To arrange a showing of the film, you can be in touch with Davies at daviesmj at That's d-a-v-i-e-s-m-j at y-o-r-k-u dot c-a. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca.